All right, well, would someone like to open us in a word of prayer before we get started? Joel, thank you. Lord, thank you for your presence with us tonight. Thank you that, um, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us. Open our ears this evening, open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Help us to understand what you are communicating to us. Lord, um, there's deep and heavy things in here, and we pray that uh, we would uh, enjoy understanding those. We pray for your um, glory and all of that, that we would take this and go forth, not just know more about you, but uh, that in our knowledge we would follow you more closely. We love you more dearly. See you more clearly. Amen. Uh, real quick, if anyone wasn't here last week and wanted um, a handout, I have some more of those. You can get them from me at any point. Um, and I'm going to start this week sending them, sending them out via email. I got uh, everyone's emails, which will be great. And they're also on the website as well, if you ever want to um, download them there and listen to the, uh, the recording. Um, so today, I, I wanted to, to start off with something a little bit, little bit different, and um, we're getting into now this section in the book of Revelation, as we begin chapter 6, where we're, we're really diving into these deep waters of um, these visions, and the, the seals, the trumpets, um, and, and all these visions that John has, and so I wanted to, to lay some further groundwork, and just based off some, some questions and discussions in the past couple weeks, um, try and clear some things up in terms of how we're, how we're looking at the book and how we're, uh, how we're approaching it uh, when we study uh, the scriptures. And so uh, I wanted to start with this discussion of um, what I'll just refer to as text versus event. I'll, I'll expand on that. And so um, for starters, though, Christians believe that the, the holy, eternal, triune God who has created all things has revealed himself to us. He has communicated to us. He's, uh, he's shown us something about who he is. That's what I mean by, by revelation, by, by uh, him revealing himself to us. And so with scripture, we believe that God has revealed himself in a special way and that he speaks through the Bible. Before we can begin to study the Bible, though, we need to ask uh, this question. A lot of people, I, I don't think, have ever thought of this. It was something that one of my professors has, has brought up and emphasized. And um, it really, I think, changes the way that we, we study Scripture. And so the question we need to ask is, where is Revelation located? Within the text or the event? To put it another way, what is the source of God's communication to us, his revelation? Is it in the text or the very words of the Bible? Or is it the events behind the text that the text talks about? A different way. Is the Bible merely a window through which we, we see the events that happen behind the text? Or is the Bible itself the revelation? So... Is this book, are these words, God's words to, to us, or is this God speaking to us, or are we looking, are we trying to look behind the words to the, the things that they talk about, and that's really where God actually revealed himself, and we're trying to get back to that. 
Um, hopefully this will start to make more sense. Here's an illustration. Pretend, pretend this is a real window. Maybe it's your cabin in the woods or whatever. I need a, need a volunteer. Okay, Patrick, tell me, tell me you're, you're standing out the window. What do you see? I see a path and trees and sky and mist and mountains. Good. Okay. All right. Now I'll tell you what I see. I see uh, a couple window panes. I see the window seal. There's some, looks like some, some growth in the, in the corners. Maybe it's a little cracked in one of the corners. Uh, Maybe there's some, it looks pretty dirty. Okay, so the difference is she was looking through the window at what was outside. I was telling you what the window, what the window is. And so to reframe that into the question that I posed before, are we looking at the Bible or are we trying to look through the Bible to the events it talks about? If we understand revelation or God's communication to be located within, within the event, the thing that is being talked about that happened, um, if, we, if we think that that's where God revealed himself and the Bible is just a source that, that tells us about that, then the Bible becomes merely one of uh, many witnesses to God's revelation. And so... God revealed himself in history, in particular events, and we should then use whatever tools we can to study those events. It means that along with the Bible, we should uh, use historical background studies, archaeology, cultural analysis, histor history, geography, etc. And so here we have a, a great little picture of the, the birth of Jesus in the manger. It's an event that scripture tells us about. And if where God really revealed himself and where God uh, communicated to us is in that event, then the Bible is just, the text of the Bible is just one witness to that. And if we're trying to recreate the event, we should use history and geography and all these other things to try and learn about that because that's what is God's revelation. Does that make sense so far if we're talking about God's revelation is in the event? On the other hand, if we understand that fundamentally revelation is located within the text of the Bible, that is the words of Scripture is God's communication to us, then the Bible alone becomes all we need to understand God's revelation because this is God's revelation. So within the Bible, we have the retelling of actual, true, historical events in which God revealed himself. When, God, uh, when, when, when Jesus was born in the manger, God revealed himself in history. When the Red Sea was parted, God revealed himself in history and so on, all these things that the scriptures talk about. When, when John received this vision on the island of Patmos, God revealed himself in history. And that's true. But 
God's revelation in that event is not the same as God's revelation within the text of Scripture. It's not the same thing. These events have been interpreted for us by the author, and they've been given meaning in the text. And so when we are trying to, as I've talked about uh, these past few weeks, figure out the intent of the author, what is the author trying to communicate, we're looking for that in the words and the text in the Bible. We're not looking for that meaning in the events behind that which he's merely describing. Our only access now to inspired revelation is through the divinely inspired scriptures. We must thus seek to interpret the text, for that is the revelation which God has given to us. So here's what it looks like now if we see revelation in the text. Up top, we have an event that happened, that is true, that God revealed himself in. But now in front of us, we have the words of God in Scripture. You can see I put the little pictures there because it talks about the event, but then it describes it for us, it interprets it for us, it tells us about it, and in telling us about it, the author here, Matthew, in his gospel, is trying to communicate something. And so when we're seeking to study the Bible, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out what Matthew was attempting to communicate to us in his recollection of these events, in his um, interpretation of these events, in the things that he told us uh, that have implications from the events. We're not trying to look through it to think, to see what he was talking about and then disregard everything that he said because we just want to get back to the actual event. We have God's inspired revelation in Scripture, and so we're interpreting the Scripture. And so, the Bible, when we talk about this, this concept of inspiration or uh, the fact that uh, the, the Bible is God-breathed, that it's, it's from God, its source is in God, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It doesn't apply this, uh, this concept, this, um, this trait of inspiration to the events that it talks about. Events cannot be inspired. They're just events. The, the text of Scripture is inspired. It's uh, the graphe in, in uh, the Greek, which means the words that are written. It refers to written words. And so what is inspired is the, the scripture itself. An important note, though, I, I don't want this to, uh, to diminish or, or feel like I'm saying it doesn't matter if these events actually happened. It does matter. The events that the Bible talks about, that it describes, are true, and we believe that. But this, and this, this text-centered approach that I'm advocating, it doesn't diminish that importance. In fact, it's vital for the truth of Christianity that these events did happen. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, and then the authors of the Bible themselves, they, they assume a literal belief in the events being described. This text-centered approach simply acknowledges that studying these events themselves 
And proving and defending their factuality is not Bible study. So if we're trying to prove that the resurrection happened, that's great, and we should do that, and I believe that it's important that we do that, but searching all the other historical documents and trying to figure out where the tomb could have been, looking at the geography, all those things, we can do that for defending the events that happened, but that's not Bible study. That's not interpreting the Bible. And so that belongs more in the realm of um, what's called apologetics or defending the faith. And it's important and we need people who do that. Um, but simply focusing on these events and whether or not they actually happened, that's not Bible study. The Bible's assuming that we believe they happened and it's asking us to read and understand what they are saying about them and what they are saying that they mean. So another implication of this then is a, an approach that centers on the text of scripture, relativizes the alleged importance of sociopolitical background or historical context. Since we are focusing on the biblical text, these outside factors become unimportant because all we really need to know is found within the text itself. This is directly connected to the discussion of meaning and significance or reference uh, that we had a few weeks ago that I introduced at the beginning um, of our, our time meeting. And so uh, we're talking, when we talk about understanding the meaning of the, the scriptures, it's helpful to think, think about it in these two circles. We're looking at the blue part, which is the meaning, or uh, you might hear me call it a, the shared truth or the theological truth. It's timeless. It's, um, it's universal. It applies to all people everywhere. It's what the author intended to communicate. And again, that's applicable for all people everywhere at all times. Then, and, and the author knows that. The author knows what they mean when they are writing something. Now, when you expand out to the yellow part, you have the reference, which is going to be the things in the past that the text might be referring to, um, places, people, things, events that happened, um, or, or the ways that the meaning the author was, is, is putting forth, the ways that that applied to another people at another time. That's what is uh, called the reference. And then the significance is now how it applies to us today or how the same, the same truth, the same blue part becomes relevant for us today. And that is, uh, that is different for each person. It um, can change. It can, um, it can apply differently to, to me now than it will 10 years later. Um, and the author of the text doesn't necessarily know all the different ways in which it is going to apply to my life. But they know what it means, what is the, the, the truth that they are seeking to communicate. Okay? And so this is then connected to this, this concept that I'm talking about of, of revelation or God's communication being in the text of Scripture. We are looking for, for the meaning, for the blue part, the 
events and those, uh, those things that we might try and find by going outside of the text with background information or what have you, that belongs to the yellow part. And so when it comes to strictly interpreting what does the Bible mean, historical background can't help us with finding the blue. It can only help us with finding the yellow. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, And so the meaning of the Bible and the truth it reveals doesn't come to us as uh, naked realities. They come clothed with particular stylistic outfits. We are supposed to see them all dressed up in their native costumes. We can call these different outfits genres. And so uh, the truth that an author is communicating, uh, he tells it to us in a particular way. And that's a genre. And we have, we're studying the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic and prophetic, formed like a letter. We have gospels, you have other stories, you have Paul's epistles. And so they're all communicating truth, but they're communicating truth in a different way. The way that they are communicating truth is going to be dependent on the outfit that that truth is wearing, or the the genre. And so in the same way, biblical events do not come to us as naked realities, but they are dressed up in interpretive costumes. In a sense, our attempts at historical reconstruction amount to stripping these events of their clothes so that we can see them as they really are, en natural. The result will probably reveal more about ourselves than what we're looking at. And so there's these events that happened, and they did happen, in fact, in history. And the author has taken this event, and they are interpreting it for us. They are telling us something about it. And they write it down, we have it in the Bible, and it is inspired, it is God's word. And so we shouldn't try and strip away and get back to just what happened, because he's telling us what we, what we need to know and what we are to, to try and find meaning in. Another illustration, um, I don't know if anyone likes paintings, and if you've uh, seen any of Rembrandt's work, he's, he's a very... Um, very well-known artist for portraying biblical scenes, and here's uh, one of his more well-known paintings of the return of the prodigal son, the story in, in Luke 15. Um, one thing that Rembrandt does so well is he, he uses light and darkness um, and splashes of color to highlight what he's, what he's, uh, what he's painting. And so you have uh, the, the light, and, and this uh, really in focus is the father welcome, welcoming back the son, and the son in tattered rags on his knees before his father. And you can also see then on the right the older brother who's, um, who's not so happy that his, his brother is back. So we have an artist who has painted something. And we look at it and we should appreciate it for what it is. How, how silly would it be if we tried to strip away at all of the all of the the dark places and and try and see what was behind it. We wouldn't do that because he's painted something and he's done it for a reason. And so so with the biblical text, we have authors who are telling us something for a reason and they're presenting uh, presenting what they they are uh, writing for a reason. And, And so if they're presenting an event that happened, 
they're going to tell us what they want to tell us about the event. It's not up to us to, to try and, oh, well, we've got to figure out all, fill in all the details of the event in the background. No, what he has told us is enough to communicate the meaning that he is trying to get across. And there are times where there will be things assumed that you know, um, and, but all of that is, is going to come from Scripture. Uh, if you are familiar with the story of Scripture, that is the background you need for interpreting the Bible. And so when we talk about these events that are described in Scripture, they become understandable to us only after the light has been refracted, so to speak, by the prism of the human biblical authors. We must use the Bible to understand these events rather than using history to try and understand the Bible. We need the divinely inspired interpretations of these events to understand the theological truth behind it. If we stood at the events themselves, we would not understand the meaning behind it. And so here's this diagram. We have God, God's works on the right, and God reveals himself in history. Those, uh, that revelation of himself, those events are then refracted, so to speak, through this prism, the human authors of scripture, and they, uh, they tell us about it, in, and we have uh, God's word, the Old and New Testament, which is uh, a unity, which is divinely inspired, and so we, we can't understand what's on the far right, those events, without them first having been refracted through the divinely inspired text that we now have. So an example to hopefully illustrate that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Imagine you could travel back in time three days after the crucifixion. You're with the apostles at the empty tomb and you see the stone rolled away. You walk inside, there's no body. You see the grave cloth. You find nothing else. What does this event mean? From merely seeing this, there's no way you would then conclude that the all-powerful Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, raised Jesus from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures, sealing the purchase that Christ made through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, his defeat of sin and death, affirming that the Father has accepted his death as payment for sin. If you were there, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't see that. You wouldn't have all of that from just, oh, I just sat there and, and saw this. Though God revealed himself then, God's revelation of those truths, you, would not, uh, you wouldn't have. It takes the, the inspired text of scripture for those truths to be revealed. Again, this did happen, and God revealed himself in this way, but you wouldn't know that these, these things that have only been revealed through the inspired text of God's word. Here's another illustration that um, one professor used to like to make. And so imagine you're at the Red Sea. There's an Israelite father who's holding hands with his little son, Yitzhak, Isaac in Hebrew. Uh, they're walking together through the dry ground of the Red Sea. Yahweh has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And through his servant Moses, has parted the waters of the Red Sea. Little Yitzhak is utterly amazed, but confused as he looks up at the giant walls of water on both sides. 
He sees the giant blazing pillar of fire behind them, keeping the Egyptian forces at bay. Once they arrive safely at the other side of the Red Sea, little Yitzhak looks up into his father's eyes and asks, Papa, what does this all mean? His father wisely replies, I'm not sure what it means, son. I guess we'll just have to wait until the book comes out. (laughs) So this illustrates that point of God revealed himself in history, and yet the, the implications of that and what it means are only accessible to us through God's divinely inspired word. Does that make sense so far? Is that, are we on, are we all good? Any questions? Okay. What does this then have, uh, have to do with our study of Revelation? Well, as we were studying the book, it describes to us an event that actually happened, namely the revelation given to John by Jesus, the visions which you saw. We're seeking to interpret the text, not the event. So, we are not attempting to reconstruct the background behind when John wrote the book by studying the geography of Asia Minor or the social, political climate of the Roman Empire at the end of the first century AD, so on and so forth. We're not concerned with it. We're not attempting to use the book as a window to the events that it describes, nor are we trying to place ourselves in John's shoes, in John's shoes and determine what the visions and events must have meant when he originally saw them. We are attempting to read Revelation as a book which belongs to a particular literary genre that calls for sensitivity to literary forms and methods that communicates its meaning and truths in a certain way. We are committed to trying to discover what it it is that the author, John, intended to communicate through this literary work. We are attempting to read Revelation as a part of the Christian Bible, which is divinely inspired by God and contains truth truth that is timeless and universal, relevant for believers in the 1st and 21st century. Yeah, hang on. I don't really think John at the time he was trying, he was writing down what he saw was really understanding what the meaning was. I mean, he knew probably it was the end times because God told him that. But, you know, things that he couldn't interpret because he, he lived at the time when he was living. Right? And so we have, um, so a couple of things. We have, again, this event that happened that God revealed himself in these visions. And then now we have a book that is telling us about this. And so even with the book of Revelation, we can see how it's not just John in real time recording everything that he saw, and then that's good, sending it off to the churches. No, John has gone back and written down what he saw and is communicating something, and that's why we have this introduction, uh, the first chapter, before we then get to the the address to the churches, and then chapter four into the visions, and then we also have this conclusion at the end. And so uh, it's not like John just again, was you know, kind of writing it all down as he goes, and that is the finished product we have. We have, um, we have a book that has been, um, been written by him, and so he saw these visions, yes, and 
I believe what it says that he saw, he saw. What it means now is what was, what is John, why is John describing this the way that he's describing this? Why is he telling us um, this? Why has he formed it the way he has formed it? And uh, some of those, it is a bit different when we have these visions that are by nature symbolic and, um, and full of, of imagery. It's a bit different than, you know, just a plain old event where, you know, you have whatever, some, yeah, some, some thing that happened and the scripture then tells us about it and they're interpreting it in some way and it's God, if God did something in history, he revealed himself. But this, again, is a bit different because it's this symbolic, apocalyptic revelation. But I think that the principles still stand the same of where we have, um, we have now a book that has been recorded by John. We, we are not standing in his shoes or over his shoulder as he is seeing these things. He's now reflecting on them and, and communicating them to us. And so how much interpretation went into that? How much did he sit back and reflect and, and interpret it and then put that into a book? I don't know, but I think that, again, the meaning of those symbols, whether it, whether it was just the symbol that he, he saw in the vision or whether it's now the symbol that he's recording and he's reflected on and is interpreting for us in some way, um, we're still looking for that, that second piece of what he, why he's uh, recording this and what he is he's doing. Um, even in the, the nature of Revelation as a book, as a whole, there, there's questions we can ask of why would he put it together like this? Did he, did he see all these things in this order? Or is he, why is he grouping these things together? With, there's things that we can ask. And um, I, I have a quote after this that might shed some light on that. Sherry, did you have? I was just going to say, are you saying then, like thinking about what Diana was asking, like John knew the message that he, that John knew the message that God gave him to write to us. Yes. He yes. did not necessarily, it isn't about whether what details he knew or didn't know or understand, but it was about the message that he knew God wanted him to write to us. Yes, yes. Um, he had to use faith to do that. Yes, but I, I also believe that, that God revealed himself. So John knew the blue part, and that's what we're trying to, to figure out is what does it mean the significance of the reference, the things that it might be referring to in the past or the things that it might apply to in the future, John might not have known all of that, and I, you know, he didn't, but the truth that it was communicating, he did know. And uh, that's part of God's, God's revealing himself. It's, if it's not something that you know, can be that is known or can be known, then he's not doing a very good job of revealing himself. And so God's revelation, it, it does, it is understandable. And for the person who wrote it, for the first audience who heard it, and for us now hearing it, there's a meaning that it is communicating and it has always communicated. The ways in which it applies will be different. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, you can tell that they really know what they're talking about. If they've been given a scroll to eat, some of the prophets in a scroll, 
that they gave John a scroll. That's, that means that God has imprinted the meaning of what he's trying, trying yeah. to say on them so they can, they can communicate it clear, so it's clear to them what they mean. Yeah, and that's a, obviously we, that happens in, uh, in Ezekiel, and that's the, the basis for then John's, um, John recreating that. I, I think it is an internalization of the message and uh, identification with the message. But um, when it comes to the book as a whole, I do think that John knows what he's communicating. So um, here's a quote from scholar Robert Wall. He wrote a commentary on Revelation. He says, After receiving the commission to write down his visions for the seven congregations, the author's decision was to format and frame his visions in a specific way. John writes a literary composition whose coherence is known by its form, its genre, and its function. The interpreter must study Revelation in literary terms, recognizing that the the author's intended meaning is conveyed by the very way in which he is put together and written down the visions he received. Literary considerations are especially essential for interpreting Revelation, since many distortions of John's intended message have resulted from the interpreter's neglect of the composition's literary apocalyptic forms and the epistolary or the the, uh, letter format. If the meanings interpreters properly continue to assign to biblical texts must be in continuity with the author's intended meanings, And if the author's intended meanings are clarified by his choice of genre, then the very literary structure of a composition of a book helps to focus what a text means. Revelation must be studied in a manner congruent with the forms of apocalyptic literature rather than discourse or narrative works. And so, to kind of summarize what he's saying, he's he's saying that John received this commission to, uh, to record these visions and send it to these churches. And so John then made these decisions to format and frame these visions in a particular way. He's writing um, in a a particular form that's a genre and it's functioning in uh, relation to that form. And so us as interpreters must study Revelation in congruency with the genre that it is we shouldn't try and read it like it's just a narrative or like it's, um, like it's discourse differently than um, if we, would, we were going to read it differently than we'd read Paul. Uh, and so we must then recognize that the author is conveying his meaning through the way that he's put together and written down the visions he received. This is essentially, he says, because if we, if we are to understand it correctly... We, we, must be in tune, we must be attuned to the, the different things that John is doing through writing an apocalyptic um, genre, writing a prophetic work. Um, we will distort that message if we, if, we don't, um, if we don't see that, if we don't pay attention to that. And so um, we also, if we're, if we're going to say that, uh, that the meaning of the biblical text is what the author intended, we also must see that what the author intended is clarified by the genre and the, the forms and the literary decisions he makes. Does that help at all? I just have a question. Do we know how much time has gone by between these different revelations? Mm-mm. Is it all one thing? 
That would be a lot in one sitting. Um, I could have been. It, I mean, probably was, uh, I would assume. But um, then in terms of him sitting down and, and recording it, um, I, I don't know how, what that process was like for him. But, um, but yeah, he, he received these visions and this commission to then record what he had seen, record um, verse 1, 2, the, uh, the witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ um, and send that to the churches. And so he's now seen all these things and he's forming it into a book. He's writing it. Uh, he's doing this in a particular way, trying to communicate a particular message. Yes, sure. I was just going to say, I know for myself, as I've like, been just trying to learn more about how different books of the Bible are written, and the, the part at the end of this was just such an aha for me, and it, it's super exciting. He talks about the way that um, a writer writes actually points to the meaning, like the, the way a, a narrative is different from poetry. Like it actually helps once I realize that as a reader and I read it that way, looking for the cues that it's giving me, it's actually like this bright light kind of pointing to like the main thing instead of me making it into something different. And that's just been so eye-opening for me to think about the different ways that things are written in the Bible that actually help me once I have my eyes open to see them, to see what the meaning is that God has. And I think that it's, I don't, I don't, know, don't know why exactly, but um, for some reason, Christians, we, you know, we can read all other sorts of books. You, know, you might love reading Lord of the Rings. I love, love Tolkien. I love Lord of the Rings. You might be into reading the newspaper or, um, or flipping through Sports Illustrated, whatever. And there's different types of, of literature that we read, and we know what to expect when I sit down and read a fictional novel, and when I sit down and read a news report, or when I sit down and read uh, a textbook for school, I'm expecting different things, and I can adapt and, and intuitively know what I'm looking for and how to read it, and then we get to the Bible and we kind of just flatten it out and treat it like just one um, cookie cutter, like it's the exact same, uh, same form all the time, and it's not. And um, so, yeah, that's one of the things that I've appreciated from uh, my professor. I've mentioned many times Ray, uh, Ray Lubeck, this focus on seeing the literature of the Bible. And, and it's, it's been beautiful as, I've opened up my, as it's opened up my eyes to, to um, really to, to the, the beauty and the intelligence of the authors that are they're different. They're not all the same. and They communicate things differently. And, yes, there's a unity to the Bible as the Word of God, yet... In his wisdom and in his uh, sovereign guidance, we have um, a bunch of different types of literature, a bunch of different authors who, who communicate in different ways. And so, um, so yeah, by, by, by seeking to uh, respect the way that John wrote his book and the, the different um, forms he used, the different, uh, different structures and, and methods that he used, we, we can really honor God by, by seeking to, uh, to interpret what the author meant, what the author intended, by not flattening it out, but letting the text speak for itself and uh, being uh, responders to, to that text. So, so any, uh, any questions? 
All right, hopefully that was, uh, was helpful as we, we keep moving. Um, we will get into the text, I promise, but this is, uh, again, as we, uh, as we begin this, this section of uh, these, these very confusing in many ways, um, these very interesting uh, visions that John receives in these next few chapters, uh, it'll be helpful for us to, to talk about some issues and some decisions for how to look at and approach the book before just getting into the text itself, um, we, we need a bit of a framework. And so um, I did want to ask for that, uh, just as you, as you reflected on the text and as you read, um, how it went for you, how, how your experience was as you read the seven seals. Um, what, did you, what did you notice? What, was, um, what are some of the symbols and images you noticed? I'll just throw all these up here. You can respond to any of them. Allusions to the Old Testament, common themes and um, emphasis that, that was uh, that you found, and um, what what seems to be the purpose? Why would John tell us this? Anyone have anything to, to say there that they noticed what stood out? Or what well, reminded me of um, Moses before the Pharaoh and uh, um, the blood and the locusts and mm-hmm. all that stuff and it was, uh, yeah. judgment. Yeah. Judge revenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any uh, any other themes that stood out, or uh, allusions, or things that you thought, oh, yeah, I've read that before in the Old Testament somewhere. That's. Has anyone read Zechariah recently? No. Okay. <laughs> what you're talking about just the seven seals, or are you talking about the whole? Uh, yeah, the, let's, let's focus on the seven seals on the, uh, well, six, one through eight, five, our, our text for this week. The trumpets, I mean, it's jumping ahead to the latter section, but the trumpets is what, uh, I got a lot out of the map. Well, you're going to have to wait till next week. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I guess that's where I spent a lot of time. What stuck out to me is that you can read the scroll after you opened it and you didn't read it. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, I had, I've read Revelation half a dozen times, and that's never, I've never noticed that before. But you open the scroll and you never read it, you just go on to the trumpet judgment. Anything else that uh, stood out? Maybe some things that were confusing? It stood out to me how many times I said come, like, yeah. like drawing them in. Yeah. Um, and it was it just that was repetitive, so that yeah. felt like it was important. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of the some of the underlying issues as we approach the rest of the book. So uh, there's this question of how how is this central part of the book really chapters four through twenty two after the introduction and then the, the addresses to the churches. Um, how is it structured? What is it, um, well, how do the, the different sections relate to one another? Are they um, chronological? Are they um, thematically related or both? And so obviously you go chapter by chapter and you get different visions. How are, how are they related? How are they connected to one another? 
Is it just this linear progression through? Uh, is there something else going on? Um, there's two main positions here. The debate revolves around whether chapters 4 through 22 represents a sequential forecast of events or whether some segments overlap uh, temporally in terms of the, the time that they happen and, and thematically. One position sees the orders of the visions as generally representing the order of the future end time events. And so this view would typically understand chapters 4 through 22 as a depiction of future events that will happen only in the period right before the second coming, culminating with Jesus' return. Uh, the other position views the series of visions as repeating or uh, recapitulating themselves with respect to both chronology and uh, the actual subject matter of the visions. Uh, it's going to uh, re, um, restate the, the different themes and um, the subject matter that's going on. It will keep repeating it in some ways. This view would acknowledge three different time or temporal, temporal references within these chapters. You would have the past, present, and future. Uh, that is, in chapters 4 through 22, it's not just about the distant future. It's about uh, the events associated with the redemptive work of Christ and the first coming, so the past, and then the course of the present church age, the present, the future coming of Christ. Um, for many reasons, I, I would uh, say that I'm convinced that the recapitulation position is, is the way to go. Um, rather than presenting the literal chronological order in which these events will occur, I believe that what we find in chapters 4 through 22 are really parallel descriptions of or recapitulations, that's what that word means, of the, the same event. Same events, rather. This explains why there's thematic and literary patterns in the vision and helps make sense of the extreme similarity. Essentially, the book consists of a series of parallel visions which, um, God, in which God expresses the same truths in different ways. Do you so, mean the uh, seals and the bowls and stuff? Yeah. Those are yeah, and also really the other visions that we'll get in uh, chapter 11 and then chapter 12 through 14 and even 17 through 19. Um, obviously, we're not there yet, but just kind of laying some groundwork, but especially for these visions right now. And so uh, one thing to note, that the order in which John saw the visions does not mean that it, this is the order in which these events will happen. And so several times we get, um, we hear John say, um, after this. And it's not necessarily saying that after this thing happens, this thing will happen. It's saying, after I saw this, I saw this. And so the order of the visions isn't necessarily the chronological order of things will happen. And so um, here's, here's what Greg Beale says. Uh, no specific prophesied historical events are discerned in the book except for the final coming of Christ to deliver and judge to establish the final form of the kingdom and consummated new creation. Revelation symbolically portrays events throughout history, which is understood to be under the sovereignty of the Lamb as a result of his death and resurrection. He will guide the events depicted until they finally issue in the last judgment and the definitive establishment of his kingdom. This means that specific events throughout the age, extending from Christ's first coming to his second, may be identified 
with one narrative or symbol. We may call this age inaugurated by Christ's first coming and concluded by his final appearance, the church age or the latter days. The majority of the symbols in the book are trans-temporal. They are, they're not um, bound to time in the sense that they are applicable to the events throughout the entire church age. And so, um, as Diana then hinted out with the seals, trumpets, and bowls, how does this apply if the events of chapters 4 through 22 are not, are not in chronological order and there is frequent recapitulation or um, parallelism or restating uh, what has been said, then what does this mean for the relationship between three judgment cycles, uh, the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls? Again, there's many different ways people have proposed we should view this. Um, some of the main views are this. There's a sequential view. For most futurists, um, those who see the events as occurring chronologically in the future, right before Christ returns, the three judgment cycles are linear, they're sequential. They do not overlap at all, they proceed from one to the next. So you have the seven seals, and then out of the seventh seal, the first trumpet, seven trumpets. Out of the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls. There's no overlap, they just proceed one to the next. Another view is a sequential view as well, but also sees a parallel in these descriptions. So the judgments are essentially sequential, but they're escalating in severity and they overlap in some places. So they, it's kind of like, like that. <laughs> Another view would be a telescopic view, like a telescope, and you'll see why. So some would acknowledge both the parallels and the sequence of the judgments, but they would also say that there is a progression with the cycles where the seventh judgment contains the next cycle. So uh, you have the seven seals, and the seventh seal is, seven tr is the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the, seventh, is the seven bulls. So it kind of expands like a telescope. That's why it's the telescopic view. Um, this is a view that I will uh, we'll present and which I think um, best accounts for some of the, the different things we have going on in the text. So call it progressive parallelism or recapitulation. Um, and so I think that the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are parallel in that they each communicate the same truths. That is, they all reveal the judgments and events that will take place throughout the course of history during the church age and at the culmination, uh, the culmination of those judgments in the second coming. In, that, in this sense, they each express the same truths in different ways. All three series of judgments portray events and phenomena that occur repeatedly throughout the church age. All of these series of judgments bring us then to the consummation at the close of human history, when we will see the final judgment of unbelievers, the salvation and vindication of God's people, and the full manifestation of the kingdom of Christ. The recapitulations within the book fill out in more detail the judgments that will occur. And so um, it's not that they're just the same thing, but they fill each other out. They, um, they complement one another. And so maybe this will be a helpful analogy. If you imagine you're watching a football game or whatever sport you like on TV, you're watching one game, but there's a bunch of different angles and viewpoints that you will see it from. And you'll maybe get a camera on the sideline one that's in the press box, someone in the stands, one that's 
over the field on a big zip line, someone in the end zone, etc. So you have um, all these different views of the same event. I think that's what we have here: is is these this same uh, these same truths being communicated yet from different angles, and I think that will explain why we have some um, really really clear similarities and parallels, and then also some distinctions between them. Um, this isn't just me, I listed some, some people who also hold that view, it's not just my crazy idea. Um, here's a quote from, from a guy named Sam Storms. This interpretive scheme is based on the belief that Revelation presents us with a description of principles and events that transpire throughout the entire course of church history between the two advents of Jesus. In other words, contrary to the futurist interpretation, Revelation is not concerned merely with events at the close of history immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. Rather, there are multiple sections in the book, each of which recapitulates the other. That is to say, each of which begins with the first coming of Christ and concludes with the second coming of Christ and the end of history. Each of these sections provides a series of progressively parallel visions that increase in their scope and intensity as they draw nearer to the consummation. This is what is called the principle of recapitulation. Here's another quote from uh, G.B. Carrick. The unity of John's book is neither chronological nor arithmetical, but artistic, like that of a musical theme with variations, each variation adding something new to the significance of the whole composition. This is the only view which does adequate justice to the double fact that each new series of visions both recapitulates and develops the themes already, see, already stated in what has gone before. So it's not merely a, a chronological sequence, and there is this recapitulation. And, and so, again, the reason that I say all of this now is because as we go through these, uh, these next chapters, um, it's really going to be necessary that we have this framework to kind of build off. Yeah, Diana. So by recapitulation, do you mean it's happened already in the church age, and this is and then it'll kind of happen again, the same theme, the judgments, the... Uh, yeah, in, in uh, many ways. And so when, uh, with the recapitulation of the text, we have um, these same events being described in different ways, um, the same things being described. Um, and, I, and I do think what they are pointing to is not a future, this will happen at one point down the road, one time. But um, for the most part, as we'll see um, today with the seals, we have these judgments which Christ has begun to pour out following his resurrection and his exaltation um, in heaven. He is the lamb who was slain and who opens the seals. And um, it's not, and they are before his final return. And so these judgments, I think, are standing for, um, for judgment that is, we see continually uh, throughout the church age. The meaning of the church age was we... Um, we're in the age of grace, that we're not under his wrath, and that we have free will. And we are under the grace of God, and we will see um, some of these things today, but, um, and we'll, we'll see how the, the saints, those who are in Christ, are protected um, in some ways, yet they still will um, face persecution and suffering, um, and, and how even now, before the final judgment, 
um, where those who are, are found uh, to not have put their faith in Christ will be, uh, will be sent to, uh, to eternal punishment in hell, um, God is still, there still is judgment. And so we'll talk about those with, um, with the seals. Matt, question about judgment in Revelation. Is it just, are we talking, when we say judgment, are we always talking about, like, the final judging? Or are we talking about God's ruling, reigning in terms of judging? Like, him being over things now? Because that would make yeah. a difference. Yeah, both. Uh, both. There is a, certainly a future judgment, a day of judgment, um, the, the consummation of these things. And then there is... Um, Leading up to that, still, God's rule and reign as um, Christ, the, the sovereign uh, Lord who was slain, uh, slain, who loves his people and who uh, is gracious to them, yet who is also the uh, righteous judge and who must, um, must uh, pour out judgments and, and they will reach a consummation. So, so he's judging now yes. and will judge. Yes. So let's, um, we'll see how this works as we, we get into the text, hopefully. Um, left us some time to, to be able to go through this. And so um, if we start with, with chapter 6, we have the Lamb opening the first of the seven seals. And this is, again, right after chapter 5, when um, the, the, the Father is sitting on the throne in heaven. There's no one found worthy to open the scroll um, Wait, there is. It's the line of Judah, the, the root of David. These messianic terms. And then John turns and he sees a slain lamb. And the slain lamb has authority. He has the Holy Spirit. And he has authority to open the scrolls. Because he laid down his life. Because he conquered. And so he now begins to open these scrolls. And again, I think this is where it's not just this future only at the very end of time, but we have um, Christ who, following his death and resurrection, now ascends to the right hand of the Father and is, um, and is enthroned and then is given authority and begins to open up the, the scrolls. And, and, um, and so we'll we'll see that it's these things begin to happen um, now. Uh, we have the first, first four seals in these first eight verses. Um, I asked if anyone had been reading uh, Zechariah. Um, the, the horses, this is drawn directly from Zechariah 6 and 1. Um, and, and so the, even the colors and, and what they're doing is, is drawn here from, uh, from Zechariah. We've seen that John likes the book of Zechariah and there's a lot of Illusions there. Uh, there's also a similarity in this whole section to um, a sermon Jesus gave near the end of his ministry. So uh, you hear it referred to as the, the Olivet Discourse, um, Matthew 24. Uh, there's parallel passages in uh, Mark 13, I believe, and Luke 21. Um, and it's Jesus, um, Jesus preaching this um, really apocalyptic message that is focusing on um, it's very eschatological and so uh, there's a lot of similarities there um, this section though it, it, uh, it shows Christ's authority to unleash judgment on the entire earth we have the four living creatures which we mentioned last week stand for uh, 
the totality of creation. Now the four horses, the four, uh, four riders, they are, are going to, to be giving worldwide judgment. It's judgment over the whole earth. And Christ here rules over a chaotic world. Uh, in fact, Christ, these, uh, these events which come about as he, uh, he's the one giving authority. That's right, as we, as we look, uh, the writer was given a crown. The, verse 4, the writer was given power. He was given a large sword. Verse 6, uh, or no, sorry, uh, verse, verse 8 was given power. The one giving all these things is Christ. It's this uh, divine, sovereign act of, of his, his power giving them uh, these different authorities, these different roles. And, and so these, the, these beings, these writers, um, they're, not, they're not nice. <laughs> uh, and they unleash this judgment on the world, and, and this shows, again, Christ's power over creation, over the world, and also he uses uh, these destructive events, he brings them about, in fact, to, uh, that he might be glorified through salvation and judgment. The four horses and riders represent really the depravity of the world in, all, uh, in a bunch of different areas like warfare, economics, politics, uh, the background here. As Ezekiel 14, in Zechariah 6, the four horses patrol the earth and they punish the nations who have oppressed God's people. Now Christ unleashes these judgments to vindicate his people. Um, yet in the midst of this turmoil on the earth, there is also um, negative effects on, on his people. The saints are impacted by these, uh, these judgments. If you look uh, at verse, verse 8, let's see, and uh, also verse, uh, verse 2, give, giving power to make people kill one another, um, to kill by the sword, in, in verse 8. Uh, and then also uh, those who were, uh, were slain. The, the word slain and uh, killed, they're always referencing in Revelation either the, the death of Christ, the slain lamb, or martyrdom um, of the saints. These are always against the saints. Yeah, Dana. When, when he wrote that uh, when Christ gives um, authority, Satan authority over the quarter of the world, are all these judgments, are we, the church people, out of the picture by then? Because I can't imagine the wrath, we're the bride of Christ, and I can't imagine Jesus punishing and, and delivering wrath upon his bride. I would hope we'd be out of there. Uh, so that's uh, in, when he gives Satan the quarter of the, uh, that's in, I believe, is that in the yeah, it's, uh, the trumpets or is that in the it's verse, uh, six verse eight. Oh, oh, verse eight. Yeah. So, um, and he, and um, says, "I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider is yeah. and Hades, um, 
and they were given authority over a fourth of the, fourth of the earth to kill. But to yeah. Kill, yeah, but you said that um, Satan, uh, Christ gave Satan authority to do that. And so, uh, so uh, Satan is not necessarily these these writers. Um, the this the the power here to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and the wild beasts. I think that summarizes the four writers that we have and the different um, judgments, and it um, shows the range of God's judgment in history against disobedient people. Um, it's not like one particular famine and plague. It's God's judgment over all people. But I, I don't, so this, this judgment, um, it impacts the wicked who are punished, and it also purifies God's people as they face suffering and um, persecution. And so I don't think that the, um, the, those being, being killed here um, well, yeah, those being killed here does include in some ways the, um, the saints. And we'll see in verse, um, verse 9, with the opening of the fifth seal, we have under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Um, and verse, verse, tw- uh, verse 11, um, were killed just as they had been. And so, um, so there is this reality in which even the saints are impacted by the depravity unleashed on the world. And yet God uses that, Christ uses that for, for his own glory and for the, the vindication of his people eventually and for judgment and justice. And so um, we will we'll continue to see this and we'll continue to see how, how these things can Exist how, as you said, the bride of Christ can face um, face these different persecutions. But, um, but to to long long answer short uh, to put it put it shortly is um, I do think that the the church is is here for the tribulation. I don't think that there's um, kind of a get out of jail free rapture card that then we all leave now. Everything happens. Uh, that would, one, kind of make the contents here a bit irrelevant because we wouldn't have to face it. But also, um, if you look at, at verse 1, or chapter 1, sorry, verse 9, um, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and so this tribulation has already begun. This tribulation is, is starting and we'll also see in chapter 7 uh, those who have come out of the great tribulation. So, um, yeah, the, there's a, a reality that the church is, is present. And the church is enduring suffering and persecution. And yet we have this example of the slain lamb who conquered by laying down his life. And we, um, if we are faithful to Christ, we are Conquerors, and those are the promises that we are given in uh, throughout the book of the, the, the one who conquers. You'll be given this and this and this, um, and those who uh, we'll see who have clothed themselves in white, who have uh, their their robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. I think that it's by following the 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 pattern of Christ, we are uh, that's how we conquer, and so. 
that does mean facing persecution, facing suffering, that, that Christ... Uh, well, I don't think I'm strong enough. Well, no, you're right. You're right. You're not strong enough. But none of us are strong enough, and Jesus is, and that's why we'll see... Well, I, I wish you'd provide a way of escape. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see... Um, that's, actually, that's actually what we'll get to, and once we get to... Um, the fifth seal, we have the saints who, how long, O oh Lord, they call out for his justice. And then uh, the sixth seal and the seventh, uh, as we get into chapter seven, um, the way that we are able to, to conquer and to persevere is because we have the seal of the living God. Um, and so we'll talk about that. Sherry, did you want to add something? I was just going to say, like, I'm, I'm wrapping my brain around this thinking about it. Because if we're saying that this isn't just all stuff that's chronologically going to happen at a certain point in history or an end, an ultimate end time, we know that it, so we're saying it is happening and it will happening, right? That's what we're saying, right? Yep. So when we read this to Diana's question, we're not, we're saying this is happening right now. This is a picture of the world that we live in right now. This is not something that is going to, but someday it's going to happen and it matters if we're here or not here. It's saying we're here and it's happening now. Mm-hmm. And Christ some, will somewhat into being an apocalyptic text with a lot of symbol. We are want like sometimes we read it as it's completely literal and, and we, we can't do that because it's mm-hmm. not. It's it's, yeah. it, it, it's the, the genre of the text is telling us that it's not literal as exactly as it's written. Yeah, and that, this is a great example here because, again, the, the, yeah. the horses and the riders who are given authority, power over the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, by wild beasts. It's not just like there's one, you know, one famine that's going to happen. And, oh, yeah, there's this famine somewhere in the Middle East right now. This is it. Like, we got to check the newspaper and try and find it. But, no, it's um, for the totality of God's creation and it's these worldwide judgments that, um, that throughout the church age are, are affecting the earth. Um, what about an earthquake that um, in uh, 6 verse 14, um, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, we haven't had that catastrophic uh, event yet. I mean, we have earthquakes, we have um, judgments, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure that those martyred are waiting to be uh, for justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more cataclysmic at the end. It is, and, and when it we... It has to be in order for the earth to be destroyed and, the, um, and Christ's return. And we get into the, when we get into the sixth seal, we do move to um, the, the, the climactic day of the Lord. And, you know, I don't know when Jesus returns that... All of these things will literally happen, and you know the islands will be removed, and every mountain is going to be moved from place. But it is speaking of this future climactic event um, with the final judgment. Um, Gina, do you have a question? Well, I had a question, but you just brought me to a new one because this is <laughs> <laughs> now. Because okay, I know it's not literal, but. Um, I believe in what it says. So I do believe that the sky is going to roll back and all this is in here. I believe that's actually going to happen. So am I not to believe this? 
So it's not that you're not to believe it, but the question we have to ask is what is it, what is it communicating? And so is it communicating that, these, that this is exactly how it's going to happen, that one day the sky will roll back and all the mountains will be displaced and the islands will, will move around? Or is it um, signifying this, this final um, climactic, glorious, uh, incredible appearance of the Lord, um, which is a shock, which is um, unlike anything that we've ever seen. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen, and we have different descriptions in the book of how it will happen, and it fills out um, some of that, but um, it's... And everything will be changed. And everything will be changed. Everything that's under the sun. Yeah, that's the message. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's great. On the white horse, somehow we maybe should have looked into it a little more, but I'm a little confused. Um, I took the meaning for it to be an, like an antichrist. Yeah, I, I do think that. Um, I, I think I don't think it's wrong to necessarily identify that as as some, um, in some way, satanic. So a lot of people they want to they hear white horse and they want to jump to oh yeah I know Jesus returns on a white horse so is this Jesus well I don't think this is Jesus here clearly not um, but the one who does he has a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest we know Jesus is the conqueror and so it is kind of this pseudo Christ this anti Christ um, and so. Yeah, I think that that's... Uh, Again, I'm maybe not one anti yeah, but, but, but all these kinds but someone of standing, figures yeah. in time. Yeah. Right, so rulers that... Are in opposition to, yeah. to Christ and Against that Christ. might have this... Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know? You know how you hear everything's in decency and order? Mm -hmm. This is it. It's, it's orderly. It's... it's Anyway, that's just for me because it makes perfect sense that my thing on the horses is four of the four corners of the earth. They're all going to go out to a different part of the earth and do something. So um, mm -hmm. that's done in decency in order. Yeah. So as then we move on to. As we move on to the, uh, to the sixth seal. We, or, sorry, the fifth seal, rather. We have, uh, we have the saints who have been the object of some of this persecution. Again, they were slain and killed. Those words used in, in these earlier judgments. They call out, how long, O Lord? You hear that, how long, in the Psalms, in uh, Habakkuk, in Zechariah. Uh, they're not calling for uh, revenge, but they're pleading for God's justice to be manifested um, if you think about the, some of the psalms, psalms that are maybe hard for us to read, where there are these, these pleas for God's justice and um, judgment in ways that are, are, are really harsh, and yet they're not a call for revenge. And, and the scripture is clear. Um, 
Paul reiterates this, quoting from, from the Old Testament in Romans, uh, Romans 12, that um, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so it's not a uh, self-seeking, I was hurt, I want revenge, yet they're pleading for God's justice, his complete justice to be manifested. And uh, that's, I think, what we see in the Psalms as well. And so we have these martyrs here under the altar. They're in the presence of God. Uh, How long, O Lord? And they're told um, to wait. They're told to be patient until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I don't think, I think martyrdom here and throughout the book, um, it's not a literal martyrdom per se. It's that, you know, the only, that, that would mean that only people who are martyred then kind of receive this special exaltation. And what about us? We, you know, most of us will never be in a situation where that's even a possibility. And so um, as we see martyrdom and, and the way that's used throughout the book, it's uh, saints who suffer for the sake of faith in Christ and who are, um, who are faithful to persevere and to overcome. Um, they are, again, called to wait for God's timing in verse 11. And then as we get to verse 12, the sixth seal is opened. And it really comes as, um, as a response to this prayer, as a response to this call for, for uh, justice. Yeah, Joel. I just, as I thought about the, um, the fifth seal and uh, the saints that are there, the martyrs, it, the contrast with the first four seals is like extreme, right? The first, under the first four seals, the horse riders, they're going out and doing what they want, wreaking havoc, and um, mm-hmm. it's just, it represents the fallen world. I mean, a lot, you can see the fallen world in all that, right? They yeah. Take, take advantage, um, nature not in full order anymore because it's fallen. All these kinds of things, and here are these um, these followers of God, these people who follow after God, wanting His kingdom. They're saying, "When is your When is your kingdom going to come in its fullness?" It's a complete contrast with the first four. They're calling for that day. Yeah, right? yeah, it's a great observation. And um, one of the things that we'll uh, we'll see, and um, I as I talked about how the the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls share these similarities, is in all of them. There's these first four judgments. Um, which are kind of set apart as a unit, and then there's the last three. Um, and also, interestingly, with the first uh, two series, the seals and the trumpets, you have um, four, and then you have uh, judgment five and six, and then there's an interlude, and then you have the seventh seal. Same thing again with uh, the trumpets, but not with the bulls, and we'll, when we get there, I'll explain why I think that happens. Uh, I, I was reading something about what makes a martyr, hmm. and this spoke to me because obviously I don't see myself as being in the threat of my life or my beliefs at this time. The character of how one lives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and faithfulness to uh, to Christ. Um, yeah. Well, when you became a Christian, you formed your own self. Yeah. Um, in verse 12, this sea, the sixth seal is open. There's a great earthquake. The sun turned black. All this imagery uh, from the prophets. It's really this, uh, this imagery that is associated with the day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. You see it in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Nahum, Malachi. Uh, printed out that list of allusions for you. Um, and so this now, we've, we've shifted, and this is 
in response to that, that plea, how long, O Lord, the final uh, consummation, this is, is escalated. This is different than the judgments that were before. These um, judgments described here, they are associated with the final return of Christ. And so here's something where I, would, I, I do think future um, consummation. And we'll also see in the, other, uh, in the other series, in the trumpets and in the bulls, um, this, uh, this description, these, some of these descriptions are then placed in the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is, is always the final future consummation day of the Lord second coming of Christ. Um, this is an interesting example of one of the things I've been talking about with this not being chronological. And so in 612 um, and in 17, we, we just read here these, all these things that happened. The great earthquake, the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon like blood, the stars fell out of the sky. Um, and it's talking about all of the stars. And then if you go to 812, we're in the uh, we're now in um, the trumpets, and so the fourth trumpet is blown, and a third of the th- sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And so, if this is strictly chronological, then that doesn't make sense because the sun is already completely darkened, and the stars are already all fallen. And then now, why would a third of them be darkened if they're already all fallen? So here, again, is this um, recapitulation or this way, uh, as we, we now look at, uh, as we'll look next week at the, um, the trumpets, how there's a lot of similarities. And that's one thing that I'll, I'll have you keep your eye out for is, is what are the similarities in the structure, in the judgments themselves, in allusions that they're making, uh, but that's an example of, you know, it doesn't make sense if it's strictly chronological because you have these things that are then happen. But if we think about, um, and so it's not chronological in terms of chapter by chapter, but as I just said, the sixth seal, this is talking about the future final day of the Lord and the fourth trumpet. It's not talking about the future final day of the Lord. It's talking about the judgments of God throughout history leading up to that day. And so it makes sense then that you have a third of the stars fall, a third of the sun blackened, and then on the final day, the whole thing is blackened. Uh, It's chronological in that sense, but not in the sense of chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, It's also interesting here in in verse 16, um, the mountains and rocks, they call on them to hide, hide, uh, and it's from Isaiah 2, uh, from not only from the, the wrath of him who sits on the throne, but from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, who can withstand it? The, the slain lamb was exalted over the world with his death and resurrection. He has authority to judge and pour out wrath. Um, and it's also it's scary. They are uh, afraid of his wrath. He is loving to his people. He is gracious Yet to the earth dwellers, uh, those who dwell on the earth, um, in the book it's used for those who do not believe in Christ, um, he is, is righteously angry with them for their, their sin. And so we have now, again, this, 
this sixth seal is kind of a response to the plea, how long, O Lord? And we get this introduction to the final day of the Lord, which will set all things right, which will be the definitive answer to that plea. Lord, make all things right. And then we get this interlude. Chapter 7. The four angels standing on the corners of the earth. And this, this in a way, is a, I don't want to um, go too long over, but uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, is, is chronologically before chapter 6, when it happens. We have the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. And the winds are the horses and their riders. And we know that because in Zechariah 6, where that imagery is coming from, Zechariah 6, 5, the horses called the winds of the earth. And so they're holding back this judgment, and they say, don't, don't pour out this judgment yet um, until we have sealed the, uh, the, the servants of God, verse 3. And this, uh, this sealing... Um, Again, and, and here, this isn't about future events. This is uh, before that happened. And, and so the seal is its spiritual protection. In Ezekiel 9, um, God seals his servants before pouring out wrath on, on, um, on the city. And on also, if you think about um, the Passover, you mark the door uh, as a way of signifying that, that you are, uh, and, and God uh, protects, he passes over. Um, and, and so that's I mean, the Exodus motif ties in with some of these other themes, especially in the, the later judgments. Um, but the seal is the spiritual protection. I wanted to read a quote um, from Beale because he can say it a lot better than I can. Um, it was also interesting when you, we think of what this signifies in, in, the, in chapter 14, the uh, seal on the forehead is equated with having the name of God. Um, in Exodus 28, uh, the priests, they're given their, their priestly attire. Um, and there's 12 stones that are to be placed on the priest's breastplate, engraved with the names of the 12 tribes. These stones were to be like the engravings of a seal. The names of each of the 12 tribes is written on each stone to show who is a member of the Israelite covenant community. And then significantly, there was also uh, to be a gold plate placed on Aaron's forehead like the engravings of a seal. It says, holy to the Lord. Seal indicated that he was consecrated to and belonged to the Lord since he was Israel's representative in the temple. The same notion of the nation's consecration to God carried over them. Um, likewise, in these verses here, God's seal identifies his people and sets them apart from sinful compromise with the world because of the efficacious effects of the lamb's blood. And so there's even this, this connection between priesthood and Christ and uh, bearing the, the name of God. Uh, and so that's a, a cool connection. And, and we see this, this uh, mention of seal other places in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1 and 4. Paul talks about the, the seal being the Holy Spirit. Um, and so it's not explicitly mentioned here, but... Um, the seal is, is talking about spiritual protection, and we are preserved by, uh, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit. The divine seal um, and his name empower the saints to remain loyal to Christ, to not compromise despite persecution and temptation. Uh, Dan, as you mentioned, you know, you're not strong enough, and none of us are. And that is why uh, this passage then 
pops up as they are awaiting this response, how long they're told uh, they are sealed. It's interesting as well that they are sealed by, by God. It's a, a d- divine decree to seal those who believe in Christ. Um, this suggests that the Lamb's death and the purchase of a select group of people out from the nations is presented as an indica- uh, indica- indicative or actual, not potential transaction. The Lamb's death on the cross purchased this people, this elect group, was determined from the foundations of the world to benefit from the protecting influence of Christ's death, where it was likewise determined that others would not so benefit. You see in chapter 13. Um, it's really fascinating here as we, we read this, um, this description of okay, the seals, and he hears 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And I know maybe some of you have have heard or thought, well, is this talking about 144,000 Israelites who in the future will be saved? Um, I don't think it is. I don't think it equals that. Uh, I think there's several reasons. Um, In 14.3 and also in 5.9, it talks about the the people of God purchased um, by the blood of the Lamb from all nations and all tribes. Uh, It doesn't make sense to just apply these protections to ethnic Jews, and I think the, church, uh, the, the book of Revelation also shows throughout that uh, the church, those who believe in Christ, make up the true Israel. Uh, the reason we have 144,000, it's the church of all ages, 12 times 12, it's the entire people of God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago um, with the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, 144 um, times 1,000 for just this fullness, this completeness. Um, that is the, the, the reason that I think it's legitimate to multiply those together is because we have this done in chapter 21 where it's the 12 uh, patriarchs who, and the 12 um, apostles who make up the foundations and the gates of the city. The new Jerusalem is made of um, those two groups, the fullness of God's people. And so then when we look at uh, verses 4 through 8, we, we talking about the fullness of God's people and also this, um, this counting, this 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad. Um, it reminds us of Numbers 1 and the census that is taken of the Israelites, and it's, uh, it's a military census. It's preparing their army uh, to, to go out and take over the land. And so here, the church is de- depicted in military terms as a remnant called out of the world to, uh, to battle for God. This force is ready to fight, and verse 14 interprets the manner of their fighting. They conquer their enemy ironically in the same way in which the kingly lamb from Judah ironically conquered at the cross. By maintaining their faith and witness through suffering, they overcome their foe, the devil, and his hosts. They are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So say it again, you believe the 144,000 are who? representative of uh, the fullness of God's people, um, God's people throughout all the ages. It's not just talking about 144,000 literal um, ethnic Jews, but it represents um, the church of all ages, all believers of all time. And I think that this is clarified by the next verse. So it's not a specific number of 144,000, but the number of 144,000 in itself means the collective church. Yes. Those who follow God. So it's 
So if you count them all up, they, they, they'd actually be um, a great multitude that no one can number. Yeah, so that, and that's uh, when we get into this next verse, number uh, verse nine. We also have this this distinction between, if you remember in, do you remember in in chapter five, uh, when John is told, um, "Look, the Lion of Judah, the the root of David." That's what he that's what he hears. And then he turns around and he sees a slain lamb. And there's this irony there and this discrepancy between what he hears. He's ex- you expect this messianic ruler to just wipe everyone out and come. And yet it's this lamb who laid down his life. We have the same thing here where, where John, verse, um, as we saw in verse 4, he hears the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. And then verse 9, he looks... And there's before him a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's not just from Israel. It's the true Israel, the people of God. Uh, You can count to 144,000. There's a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were the ones wearing white robes, crying out, salvation belongs to our Lord who sits on the throne. Now, all, did they get the seals too? And these are the ones who, who were sealed, are the people of God. All, all those who uh, belong to Christ are sealed. It's not just this separate, um, this separate Israelite group. And I think that we see this because of the way that uh, the number is used throughout, throughout uh, the rest of the book in uh, chapter 14, I believe. Um, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads uh, they are singing uh, and the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth verse 3 it's, it's not just talking about a literal 144,000 only Jewish people and again that wouldn't make sense with why there would be this, um, this special protection and focus on the Jewish people win in first uh, in five nine we we hear this beautiful praise that the the uh, the lamb was slain to ransom a people for God from every tribe and language people and nation and again that's why here when he turns what he sees and what this number represents is the fullness of God's people the great multitude that no one can count from every nation people tribe and language. Does that make sense? It is awesome. It's beautiful. And it's exciting. It is us. And what's also great here is is how it describes them. It says they are standing before the throne of God. Uh, At the end of chapter 6, there was this question. All the people on earth who who were being judged, they call it to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? Who can stand? Can you translate it? Who can stand? Well, now we learn who can stand. It's those who have been sealed by Christ, who have been redeemed by his blood, who are wearing the white robes. Those are the ones who stand. This whole chapter, chapter 7, it's essentially, if you just think of it in parentheses, around... uh, uh, it's parentheses and it explains chapter 6 more in depth. It provides a larger background. The great multitude um, 
the Abrahamic covenant. Think of the Abrahamic covenant. It was uh, to be a blessing, um, to be a nation of all, all people. So more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky that you cannot count. Um, here you have the great multitude fulfillment of that. And then these final verses of this chapter, they look ahead to uh, the final return of Christ and, and those who are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. We learn later that uh, there is no temple in the, the heavenly city because uh, God is there. He is, his, he is the temple. The lamb is the temple. Uh, they will never hunger or thirst the sun will not beat down on them. The lamb at the center of the throne, he will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. These last few verses, I'll breeze through them quickly. Um, the seventh seal is opened. And the seventh seal is the, the, the finale, so to speak, of uh, this judgment. And it is... Um, the, the day of the Lord, it, it speaks of this final consummation of, uh, of God's judgment. And this still is responding to that plea, how long, O Lord? There's silence in heaven. Uh, the silence was common in the prophets. Uh, God's judgment was so great, the whole world would fall silent. It was, there was even times where they're commanded to, uh, to fall silent. In Habakkuk 2 and Zephaniah and Zechariah, uh, the seventh seal is... A continuation again of the sixth, and it's a response to the plea. And so, um, we we now have these first five seals, which are taking place throughout the church age, and then we also have these final two seals, six and seven, which are in the future. Um, and we'll see this pattern continue in the rest of the judgments. Really, in the rest of them, one through six will be present church age, and seven will be the final day of the Lord. We transition here to the trumpets as well. We transition from the seals to the trumpets, and it does so. I mean, it really inter interweaves them together um, to show their their connection. They just flow right into one another, um, but then it will recapitulate, as we have been saying. And, um, the final verse, verse five. The the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and he hurls it upon the earth. He hurls God's judgment upon the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And we should be reminded of Mount Sinai, kind of the stereotypical theophany or appearance of God. In Exodus 19, we have the same words to describe God's appearance. Thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so at the end of every single one of these judgment cycles, at the end of the seventh judgment, there's the same description of Thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And that's another hint as to these are, it's recapitulating. It's filling in uh, the gaps and it's describing the same, um, same thing here. And so that's something to, uh, to keep an eye out for. Um, there's so much more that we could, I mean, there's always so much more that we could, we could spend time on. I don't want to, I, I would love to keep going, but I don't want to, I've already gone over. Um, is there any questions or anything before before we, we wrap up? Yeah, Petra. Just real quick, um, it stood out on 617, the great week of their wrath has come. Yeah. I always would think of, you know, just God on the throne and his wrath, but 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. shortly then, what, what can you take away from this? How are these, the truths revealed here, relevant for us? How, uh, how do they change the way we live? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about ourselves in these, in these verses? Well, all the grief we see in this broken world, uh, God will have justice. Yes. Ultimately, Amen. Take yeah. Absolutely. He'll be faithful to his promise that he will clothe us in, in whiteness. It's not a part of good works, uh, but it's his, his goodness. I think it's actually so hopeful to see it as now and someday also. Mm -hmm. Just to make sure, like, it's not just someday that I'm waiting for Jesus to do these amazing, this amazing thing. and But it's happening now, and if I could just have my heart and mind changed to be thinking and living in that right now. Like, I just know it would change me to have that hopefulness now. Yeah. Anything else that really impacted you from this week? All right, well, we can, uh, we can wrap up. Um, I didn't print out a uh, homework assignment partly because I ran out of time, but partly because I also wanted to, um, to give you the chance to now, we've been going out this for a few weeks and I've given you some kind of training wheels, so to speak, just with the, the method that I had uh, been, been teaching and, and to just have this opportunity to now, the next week, read the text and take your own notes if you want, or just think deeply about some of those questions or see how now having practiced these things for a few weeks you start to notice things and and pick up on things that you wouldn't have before and so um, so you don't have to write out all these questions or you know write down everything you observe if that's helpful for you then great you can do it um, but I thought it might be helpful if you if you would like to just read the text and and um, pick up on, on the different things that you um, you see would be great. And, and if it is helpful for you to have uh, a worksheet or, or something, let me know and, and I can um, I don't have to, uh, to quit those altogether. Um, but yeah, uh, a few things to notice again, as I pointed out, notice how the, the notice the parallels and the patterns and the, uh, the different themes that are um, being woven throughout the book. Notice the structure of those judgments and how they are similar to the, the seals. 
uh, notice then even also how they're different. Um, think about illusions and what, um, what, it, what it could be drawing on from uh, this imagery um, and try and think about big picture about how this fits into the book and what, what John is, is trying to communicate, why he's, he's writing what he's writing. Um, but with that, we, uh, we can be wrapped up unless there's any other questions. Let you guys go. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, Thank you. it's my pleasure.